Humanity has been developing some incredible tools for understanding the complexity of our world. Computing, data collection and analysis, communications, satellite imagery. A lot of different tools and techniques are coming along so that we can have better understanding of the impact of our choices. And this can guide better public policy so that we collectively can be more mindful um, about our choices and our behavior. So amid some really uh, scary and sad issues that humanity is facing right now, I draw some optimism and hope when I discover really smart people doing amazing work in the world to solve these problems. One of them is with me today. Greg Taff of the World Resources Institute talks with me about how data geeks are saving humanity. Let's dig in. This is the joy of saving the human race, where we try to get the world to cooperate. It's so the human race can avoid some urgent global problems that could mean the end of civilization and cause lots of suffering around the world. But also, we just want to have a good world that we enjoy and we can feel proud of. We are not just citizens of our own countries. We are citizens of the human race. Let's learn to manage ourselves responsibly. Let's help the human race act like it wants to last for a while. I think humans are awesome and the human race is worth saving. There is no time to waste, so let's do this. Hi friends, welcome to the joy of saving the human race. I'm Shelby Murtis. I'm really excited about today's show. This is gonna be a fun one. Partly because this is the first time I'm interviewing someone on the show. It's so far just been me solo, which has been fun, but um, I wanna to talk to other people because there's a lot of smart people out there to talk to. Um, I just wanna let you know before we start that uh, you are listening to this show somewhere. Um, there are multiple places to listen to this show. So it's on YouTube, it's on Spotify, it's on most podcast players. It's also on my website, www.joyofsavingthehumanrace.com. So you have multiple ways to listen to this and be a part of the movement to make uh, a world we can be proud of. So, um, and also share it with your friends please, let's grow this thing. So, all right, well, today's guest I'm excited about. We're gonna talk with Greg Taff, who works for the World Resources Institute as their Director of Research and Data Integrity. And for full transparency, I'll tell you, I have known Greg just about forever. We first met when we were in third grade and became friends. And you can tell I have some gray hairs. So that was a little while back. Um, and so here we are talking over the internet um, on a podcast and YouTube channel. And back when we met, there was no internet. There was no YouTube. <laughs> there was no podcasts. <laughs> so I think way back then we would have to use extreme imagination to uh, know that we would be doing this right now. So. I'm having Greg here, not just because he's my friend, but also because he's wicked smart and he's interesting to talk to and he does fascinating work. So um, this will be a good conversation. So Greg, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Shelby. Good to see you. Yeah. Good to be here. So can we start with you giving us just a real brief summary of what the Re World Resources Institute is and what you guys do? Absolutely. World Resources Institute is an environmental development, non-government organization. And uh, I'm actually going to read you the mission, which is very brief. Yeah. Uh, WRI's mission is to move human society to live in ways that protect Earth's environment and its capacity to provide for the needs and aspirations of current and future generations. So that's WRI's mission statement. And um, WRI is, I, I would say, first and foremost, a research organization, but uh, WRI considers itself a think tank and a do tank, which is kind of uh, a new term. And the, the idea is that we're also putting the research into action and, and you know, helping with interventions at government levels, at uh, uh, with company with uh, companies and with other non-government organizations and, and communities, so and kind of all levels, working in primarily uh, the developing world and and the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, yeah, we, we we work a lot with data and information, getting it into the hands of the people that need it to make decisions to actually. Uh, make a positive impact on the environment while allowing um, you know, development to continue in, in the place in, in all the places where we work. Mm -hmm. Nice. And I would recommend that listeners go check out the website of World Resources Institute. You know, I've prowled around there and just learned a lot. It's and it's fascinating all the stuff that they're doing so i encourage you to just go take a look at it of course i'll have a link for you in the show notes you can click um you know but some of the main issue areas i saw um worked on there were climate forests ocean uh food security water security uh cities uh oceans um, I might be missing a couple, but these are all research areas that are as energy, we know, yeah. energy exactly, all critically important. So, um, yeah, so it's a quite a broad organization, and um, there's over 1,500 people working there now. And when I started, just less than three years ago, there were just over 800 people. So it's grown very quickly. Yeah, and um, I forgot what I was going to say about that, but. Uh, that's huge growth, though. I mean, that's yeah. uh, might be kind of dizzying, actually, to exactly. double an organization in three years. Absolutely. So we're having to, you know, kind of put some things in, in, into processes and, and protocols that we haven't before in order to manage the growth. And it's it's a bit of a challenge, but it's also exciting in terms of the, the effect and impact I think the organization is having, yeah. which is also increasing very substantially. Yeah, yeah. So your job there is director of research and data integrity. What sure. does that mean? What is what do you do? Okay, well, along with my team, I've got several on my team. Um, we we try to. I mean, we do what what the, the title says, and that is to try to uh, maintain integrity throughout the organization in, in the research and also in data products that we produce or, or that we curate. Um, we do that in several ways. The, the most prominent way within the organization is that we're, we're overseeing the review process of our publications. So we 
produce our own reports and issue briefs and working papers and a few other uh, different kind of knowledge products, as we call them, which are different types of papers, basically. And we publish it it's very similar in, in a way that's very similar to how peer-reviewed journals publish their papers. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, we're like the editors of, of the journal that is WRI's set of publications. So what we do is we, we review a lot of the publications. We also oversee the review process uh, that we have for the organization, which includes um, a, a pretty rigorous set of internal reviewers, meaning folks within WRI and external reviewers, meaning anyone outside of WRI. Um, we, most publications have a, a minimum of eight reviewers outside of ourselves. And, um, and we try and get folks, you know, someone to review it who's from uh, maybe a competing viewpoint. We more than what, what made, sets us apart from some peer reviewed academic journals is that we also require reviews from user groups. So our users aren't, aren't usually academics. Sometimes they are, they're, they're part of our, our, our intended audience, but our intended audiences be they government officials, be they community members or, or um, uh, you know, non-government organizations, we need to make sure that those four folks review it and, and get feedback. And then my department, we oversee uh, how the, ed the authors address the editor, I'm sorry, how the authors address the reviewer comments. Hmm. And we kind of give the final approval to go out for publication along with the uh, program director, who is a kind of the more topical uh, lead for within their, their team. So it's quite an extensive review process and we oversee that and, and, and manage that. In addition, we do we try to um, build capacity among the re staff for research. Uh, some, you know, there's a lot of different levels that come in who are doing, of people who are doing research. Some folks have never done research before. Some folks are, are you know, very, um, you know, they've been doing it for a long time and published many articles in, in many different venues. So um, we try and help build various research skills throughout the organization. And we try to work with staff as much as possible from an early stage of the research, ideally at or before the proposal development. And then through, you know, determining what the research questions are and what the method will be to answer those research questions. And then uh, uh, and then in terms of, you know, once the research is done to, to write it up and then give support however we can in terms of the writing. And, and then of course comes the the review process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. And when I first heard about the work you're doing, I found it pretty fascinating that you get to sort of have your hands on a lot of different issue areas and a lot of different research being done and kind of see the whole breadth of the organization and, and what's being generated there, which is, is pretty cool stuff. Yeah, for me, it's been great. I, I, um, I originally was a professor and then I worked at a research institute in Norway for about seven years uh, as a researcher myself. And then when I came here as kind of a research director of sorts, um, it's really changed. I'm not doing my own research almost at all, but I'm learning so much because I'm reviewing and reading and, and discussing research with folks from all these different areas we mentioned earlier uh, at WRI. And for me, I'm learning a lot, and um, I really enjoy the, the opportunity to, you know, help try to 
really make our research better and understandable to all audiences and be able to work in all these different areas. Uh, and and uh, so it's been a joy for me. And like I said, the learning has been the biggest thing that I'm learning from about energy and forests and uh, water and oceans in, in ways that I haven't before. It's really yeah. great. Yeah, that's awesome. So let me um, kind of frame this conversation I want to have with you today about how, um, you know, data and research tools are advancing and giving us new capabilities to deal with humanities issues. So part of what motivated me to have this conversation today is that I've been slightly depressed lately. I've been doing a bunch of research on the dark, scary things that humanity is on the verge of like damaging. Um, and so I've been immersed in like climate change and destruction of nature and pandemics and nuclear weapons and like dangerous technology and like all this horrible stuff, it can kind of get me down. So I thought it could be fun to talk with someone like involved in good work where smart people are solving problems and making things better, you know? Um, but another nugget of this is I had this idea recently where I was thinking about climate change and how this just crept up on us over many decades. Um, humanity unleashed these horrible forces on the world, but nobody went out and said, hey, I want to destroy the climate. Like that was never the intention. That was just an accident. And when fossil fuels started being used, um, no one knew the impact that would have. And, and I look back at previous generations and it seems almost like they were just stumbling around in the wilderness breaking things not knowing like what they were doing and now fast forward like we kind of understand how this stuff works and we don't have to just stumble around and break things we can actually you know have tools to understand the consequences of our choices and collectively just make better choices using these tools, you know? And so kind of comparing back then with now, I feel more confidence that maybe we can pull this off. Maybe we can, you know, as humanity get our act together by just being more aware of what we're doing, you know? Um, am I on the right track here? Like, do you feel this kind of um, optimism on this front? Yeah, well, um, I think I feel both of your feelings. It, it certainly is can be, you know, a little or more than a little overwhelming to think about all the, the uh, environmental and, and development problems in, in the world today. And, um, and we can't let ourselves get stuck in the depression of it, I think, because it's easy to do, but it doesn't help anybody and doesn't help ourselves. And so the best thing we can do is try to help and then, and, uh, hopefully we'll be able to make enough changes in, in the amount of time that we need to in order to not have, you know, really quite uh, catastrophic consequences uh, and to learn to adapt to the changes that we know will, will, will happen. Um, so, but, but it's a good point that, you know, we, we are working with a lot more knowledge now and, and, and more knowledge comes out every day. And so, you know, the more we can harness that knowledge and, and work with the right actors to actually make an impact, the more chance we have to 
you know, to, to avoid the catastrophic problems, to have to have more equitable and, and comprehensive development around the world for folks everywhere in a way that's sustainable. Yeah, yeah. So we have now at our disposal these tools we did not used to have, like modern computing, the ability to collect more data and analyze it. We've got satellite imagery. We've got other ways of collecting data. Um, these are pretty awesome tools. Like what, what is the impact of these tools on current decision-making? Like how, how is this stuff making a difference in the world in terms of grappling with these hard problems? Well, I would start to say that actually a lot of it has to do with the interaction of knowledge and, and politics and, and uh, the areas where politics is actually taking the knowledge into account, then, you know, there's been some pretty amazing uh, movements in, in countries where, you know, politics are kind of setting aside signs and not listening and, and focused on what I think is short-term gain for a, a subset of actors in the country. Then uh, obviously the more knowledge we have, it doesn't really make it an effect. So I think everything starts with good governance. Mm -hmm. um, which also supports the science itself. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in a lot of cases, the data and the information that's getting into the hands of not just folks in government, but in companies, in nonprofits, and into communities has really made differences. I mean, uh, yeah, I certainly can't go into all of them, but I can give some examples. Yeah, um, please. One is, I'll say, like, uh, WRI has a lot of what we call data platforms. Um, they're usually websites or, or something that can be um, like an app on a, on a cell phone. And um, we try to basically with these data platforms, we get information into the hands of people who can use it to make decisions on the ground. So one good example is Global Forest Watch. That's probably our best known uh, data platform. And what that does is it, it basically ingests data that's uh, updated every week or two that um, basically takes information from satellite images all over, that are monitoring the ground all over the earth and it monitors where there are uh, you know fires occurring in forests and where there were forests are being uh, cut down and um, getting this information to uh, folks on the ground you know within days or weeks at the most really help to prevent uh, you know problems from popping up that, that are, are more long-term. So the easy example is if there's some illegal forest cutting and this information gets to uh, uh, into the hands of rangers and forest and they can go out there and, and stop the forest the illegal forest cutting right away. And this is happening a lot in Indonesia we have a lot of success. We've had um, a lot of uh, you know contact with folks in Indonesia where we're working with uh, governments and local governments and actually, um, you know, seeing, seeing a decline in, in forest loss in Indonesia. And we think part of it is due to this, this, uh, this data platform and, and being used over there. And I will add that it's not just the data itself. Maybe we can get into this more late, later, but it's, it's really the having someone who's uh, perhaps creating the data or knowledgeable about the data. Someone from WRI, for instance, or people, a lot of folks from WRI work with 
the folks on the ground to make sure they're understanding how to use this, to make sure we understand what they need so we can, you know, uh, maybe present the data in new ways or get a different set of data for them. Uh, and, and this kind of two-way interaction with folks in order to understand how best to use this data and how best they can receive the data and, and, and take action on it. Uh, just having the data out there alone doesn't usually, you know, uh, make enough impact. It's really working with folks to use the data. Yeah. Well, that's exciting to hear you say that because I think over, um, I don't know, over history, there's been tons of research done about a ton of things. And sometimes great research can just sit in an academic journal or something where the public doesn't even know it's there or a politician doesn't even know it's there. You know, there could be great knowledge that's just sort of locked away and not really used and not made applicable to the person who needs to use it in a good way. So it's, it's interesting to hear you say that, that this kind of work, um, it requires all the analytical ability, of course, but also involves people skills and connections and relationships to, to make it work. Yeah. And uh, I think that's one of WRI's real strengths, which is, is why I think WRI has been so successful to uh, work, you know, at levels in the, with the UN and, and um, you know, at high levels and, and lower levels in, in the government all around the world to actually have an impact because we really do focus on those people skills. And, but what my job is, is trying to make sure that all this stuff that we do and all this interaction and the interventions we, we put, to, uh, we help to, to um, promote are based on solid research. So we know that we're actually trying to suggest the best interventions or the best, you know, some of the best interventions that we can. Yeah. So do you, with this interaction between your organization with like people on the ground or with businesses or with governments, um, do you, is this you guys coming up with good research that you think people need to know and getting it to them? Or do they come to you with requests for stuff that they want figured out or both? Well, I would say uh, that's a, a good, good question for sure. I think it's, it's all of the above, for, for, I would say. Um, we, tr we try our best, and I, I, I think we, we need to do better, but we're, we're doing our best to incorporate uh, folks on the ground, you know, the, the key stakeholders, the key, you know, people who, who this is, who a lot of interventions may be affecting. We try and incorporate them early on into the research so we're understanding their needs and, and their concerns and their thoughts. Um, but in terms of responding to research needs, I would say that's more often um, sometimes governments, but most often the funders. You know, we have a lot of uh, uh, foundations and governments that are funding um, our work. A lot of times the, the uh, funders or the funding governments maybe European governments or government of Canada, more, more developed world funders. And the governments of the recipient countries are, are, are often the, um, you know, the, or the, 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 that's where we work is in, let's say, a lot of areas in Africa and South America, East Asia. Um, and and uh, so a lot of times we're responding to um, 
the requests from these developed world uh, governments in order to you know influence the developing world uh, in, in order to influence the developing world in general yeah well I'm imagining too that this kind of work you're describing is really maybe especially useful in developing countries that are poor because they don't have that capacity themselves you know so a government and, and often there's this um, relationship between poverty and environmental destruction which we see over and over um, or you know other issues that you deal with but um, you know the US government might be able to hire a bunch of researchers to tackle something but the government of Indonesia might not be able to you know there's there's sort of a difference in capacity that, that you can sort of fill in you know yes um and a lot of times it'll just be the money that's coming from the government or from uh like i said or, or foundations and then with with certain you know very specific um goals that they, they, they want to fulfill and that some of that money goes to to us or other ngos and some of the money will go directly to the recipient countries and we'll work with them as partners to to implement you know uh research and interventions as necessary. Yeah. Um, capacity is, is part of the issue a lot, but uh, you know, a, a lot, there's a lot of capacity in the, in the developing countries as well. And a lot of times it's just the funding or coalition building that, that is, is more necessary and things like, like this that we can play a role in as well. Yeah, yeah. So with these kind of tools that we're describing of you know, that are allowing you to do better research, better mapping, better data analysis and whatever. Is this helping us uncover connections between different policy issues that, that in the past may have been handled separately? So like, um, you know, poverty and economics versus the environment or even the protection of nature or climate, you know, like, Sometimes you might have government agencies handling these things separately, but they're really tightly intertwined. And sometimes people haven't always recognized that in their, in their choices. Yeah, I would say, I mean, that's a real challenge from, um, from a political standpoint or from not necessarily political, but from a, just an institutional, a government institutional standpoint is that they're often working pillars that are separate. And these are issues that are, are, are you know, obviously intertwined, as you say. So, um, but I think getting them to work together is, is more, is getting more and more important. Um, you know, that we talk about mainstreaming ideas of, of gender and environment into all the different aspects of government. So these are some of the important issues. But, but from a, um, a research standpoint, yeah, I think things are moving in a, in a way where we're, we're connecting different um, issues better. We have, uh, I'd say one good example is another uh, data platform we have called Resource Watch. And on the, it's similar to Global Forest Watch, but we're trying to focus on a much broader uh, set of environmental issues and social issues as well. And so we have over, I don't remember the number, but I know it's over 200 data sets that are all spatial data sets. So it's like you, as you, Come to the page on resourcewatch.org. You'll see um, if you explore the data, you'll see you'll see a, a world map, and you can 
you know, add or subtract a whole bunch of different data layers, all, any of these 200 data layers. And uh, you can zoom in, zoom out, and see how, you know, what, what some of the interactions are. Of course, sometimes it can be a little, you know, it can give folks false sense of understanding because we don't know that just because two data layers are overlaid and we see what seems to be a correlation doesn't mean that one is causing the other. It could be, you know, very different issues. But at least we can start to see some of these different processes how they how they interact, um, you know, spatially with, with other processes or other data sets. So it's it's certainly exciting what what could be possible, and, and the question is is figuring out what data sets to put together, and then how and how to analyze it, and then for what purpose, and um, how the information is used. Yeah. So, like for that tool that you mentioned, what might some of the layers be? that you can overlap and see comparisons with? Yeah. Well, one thing we, we have is uh, there's one tool that I think allows you to see an estimate of how much of what areas on Earth would be uh, covered up by an X amount of meters of sea level rise, right? Yeah. So what areas are below, you know, one meter above sea level right now or, or 1.5 meters or five meters or whatever. Of course, you know, this, you know, we can build levees and we can build dam systems and, and things like this and, and, and uh, ways to protect areas that are below sea level. But in general, it gives you a, you know, kind of a broad overview of the areas that are, are more, more at risk. Um, we have a, a water peace and security tool that looks at areas that are, are it overlays information from press releases and, uh, and you know, just press in, um, in general and, and uh, a few other data sets, I think, that collect information on where there are, there's unrest, civil unrest happening, violence. And then we overlay that onto an area of, that looks at, you know, where there's been drought and where there's risk of either flooding or more drought and, and um, trying to show and, and see if, you know, what, what that relationship is in terms of areas that are at, have real water risks um, and and, you know, what that if that results sometimes in, in violence, because just, you know, water is obviously our most precious resource. And when there's a water shortage, um, it's just a ripe opportunity for bad actors to, uh, um, you know, make use of the situation or, or, or try and take control of the few water resources there are. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, uh, an area where we're kind of bringing disparate sources of information together to try and understand what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you describe that, what, what occurs to me is that it could be a great resource for the international community, like, you know, the United Nations and their agencies and various governments around the world to know where hotspots are about to develop. You know, so like the water security and violence issue, we could see, oh, they're going to run out of water in 10 years and that's going to be bad. Like, let's get in there and do something before the crisis happens. That would be great opportunity if we were using it well. Yeah, I agree, and that's that's the goal. That's certainly the goal. Um, and you know, of course, a lot of this is, requires different kinds of modeling, and there's a lot of uncertainty. And so, we certainly don't. Uh, you know, there's a lot of weather variability, and, and with climate change, it's going to be more variable. So we we you know everything is based on estimates, which makes it a little challenging. But certainly, that's the goal: is to use this to to allow us to plan in advance to predict, prevent any, um, yeah. you know, 
And do you guys do um, research that can help us understand how economics impacts the environment? So, you know, we're in this global economy right now where people can just buy stuff that's resourced wherever in the world. And so somebody buying a product might not know that it's actually causing deforestation in Brazil or Indonesia or Africa or, you know, like kind of know the consequences of what we're doing. Are you able to blend like economics with environmental issues like that? Sure, I would say that the the most direct way is that we're actually working directly with a lot of companies to green their supply chains. So a lot of that basically means that uh, we want to make sure that their supply chains are not causing deforestation. That's probably the biggest one. There, there certainly are other issues in terms of you know making sure it doesn't uh, impact biodiversity too much or, or uh, water regimes and things like this. We we do have most of our work on in this way on uh, on. Um, making sure that they're deforestation-free supply chains. So we work with different companies, particularly food companies, big food companies, to make sure that, uh, to help them understand where they're sourcing their, uh, their, their commodities, right? And, and understanding uh, which areas around those source uh, farms are experiencing deforestation to allow them to go there and try and uh, intervene and actually help uh, the farmers to find ways to have good livelihoods without having to expand into other new lands. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of pressure these days on companies to make sure that um, they have, that they're, they're generally green and that they're not causing deforestation. So they're feeling a lot of um, responsibility, I'd say both pressure and responsibility to the public and and also from a, a profit standpoint that you know they want to be seen as a good company so that they can sell their product and uh, that's so we're helping work with you know we're working with them to help uh, make sure that they can monitor what their supply chains are doing or not doing to the environment and then you know uh, intervene as necessary. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know that this is bringing up for me the. The issue too of how we have such a crowded world now like we've got eight billion people doing a whole bunch of things and it used to be that nature was plentiful and now it's getting crowded out and so there's a lot of even for a given spot of land sort of competition about what that spot of land should be you know should we be protecting it as forest should it be farms? Should we be growing something else there? Should it be developed? Like, you, there's just so much pressure on all these places, and, and there's all these like competing needs um, of different people wanting things or different people wanting to produce things or use it in a different way. And do you see ways that that these data tools are helping us manage those frictions? or understanding the, the consequences of like, okay, this spot, should we use it this way or should we use it that way? Yeah. Well, it's interesting you bring this up because actually I would say WRI, or WRI recently produced what I would say is probably the most comprehensive analysis of this basic issue is like, you know, what to do with our land. And it's in a report that's called uh, Creating a Sustainable Food Future. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, uh, and you can find it on our website. And the, the report is about 600 pages long. 
but there is an executive summary that's 100 pages long. And uh, there are press articles about it all over that you can look for if you want a, a quicker summary. But the, the gist of what it did was, and I, I was lucky enough to actually be uh, one of the primary reviewers for it. So I, I was quite, um, I know the, the work pretty, pretty closely. And it basically is looking at how, how can we, as you said, the population is growing. So there's gonna be an increased demand for food, right? Um, over the next X number of years. We're focused on next 20 to 70 years, maybe or 20 to 80 years. And, but, but we do see a, a likely leveling off of the population after some time. So it's not, it's not exponentially growing, you know? So, so how can we feed the, the expected increase in population while um, and ideally equitably so that we make sure everyone is, is well enough fed, you know, as, as much as possible while making sure that we don't um, increase our carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere too much. And part of that means that we're going to have to um, have a, an, uh, enough forest area to soak up some of this carbon, because that's one of the biggest ways that we're going to have to address climate change is by maintaining and growing forests. And so, but of course, forests take up land and agriculture takes up land. So, and we need both. And so how do we do this, right? So, so one of the biggest issues is, is, is um, making sure that we have efficient agriculture so that we can grow a lot of food on the land we are allocating to food and which would leave us the ability for us to protect a lot of the forest area. And I think uh, it's key to note that protecting the forest is more important than growing new forests because if you cut uh, a hectare of forest land, you're just, you know, it's a big uh, pulse of carbon dioxide that's going into the atmosphere within um, days to uh, months to years, um, rather than uh, growing forests on a new on a hectare of land, which will take you know tens of years um, to to kind of bring back that same amount of carbon into the earth. Um, so, with that perspective of how to manage all this, um, how are the data tools we're we're, we're uh, creating and and uh, using? How do they actually make an impact. One of the ways is certainly like I was just talking about with Global Forest Watch, um, you know, helping folks be able to monitor where the uh, forests are being cut down and stop them, stop it as quickly as possible. But um, also monitoring uh, where the forests are, where there's trees, where there's not trees, monitoring where there's agriculture and, and uh, how efficient the agriculture is. We can do a lot of this with um, uh, satellite image, imagery. Uh, and, and of course, monitoring yields is actually one of the more difficult challenges with satellite imagery, but there's been some progress and that can help, you know, help us figure out where there are areas that we need to uh, really focus on in increasing yields and, and increasing uh, tree cover and things like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually, you know, some, some data and mapping like what you described that actually caused me several months ago to radically reduce my consumption of meat. Right. I don't want to proselytize too much, but, um, yeah. you know, it became aware to me how crowded the planet is. 
and how much of the earth is being used for agriculture and then how much of that agriculture is based on just feeding our animals in this sort of right. inefficient system. And that's something that I think, I mean, past generations had no clue about this impact that we're having. And even now we're starting to understand or like, wow, this is, this is something, you know, it's convincing to me. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, that's an interesting point you make. And that's kind of one of the biggest takeaways from this creating a sustainable food future report was that uh, the best way to reduce your carbon footprint in the world is to reduce the intake of, uh, of, of beef and uh, sheep or goat. Those are the, the, big, the big ones. Obviously, for folks in the U.S., it's mostly beef is the one that, uh, that, that, that makes the impact. So it's amazing if you look at the carbon impact of, let's say, legumes like beans and, and, and uh, chickpeas and things, the amount of carbon that puts into the atmosphere compared to the same amount of nutrition that you would get from beef. It's, they used to think it was about 10 or 20 times as much from uh, impact from beef because of uh, the carbon emissions and everything. But actually, what the creating a sustainable food future shows is that it's far more than that because the, the beef, the cows take up so much land and that's uh, impacting how much forest is being cut down. So if you consider the land use impact and the fact that we can't use that land for forest to soak up carbon, it's, I don't remember the numbers, but it's something like a hundred times as much. So let me also say that I love steak. I really love <laughs> I steak, too. I love I hamburgers. Love, I, it's yummy, I get it. <laughs> Yeah, but I have I have changed and, and I haven't stopped eating, but I've changed my behavior and I eat a lot less beef than I used to. It's uh, partly I think it's, it's good for health reasons in general, but it's, it's really critical for the environment. That is by far the biggest thing anyone can do on a personal level to, imp to have a better impact on the climate. It, it's amazing what you can do by just eating less beef. If the world would eat half the beef that they're eating now, it would be a, a, a massive push towards um, you know, a better planet. And, that's, and I'm trying to eat less than half of what I, I used to eat, and that's my goal. Right, yeah. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm noticing as we talk about this that to gain this insight about meat that we're talking about right now required collaboration between nutritionists, uh, farming experts, atmospheric modeling, you know, of the climate, it, land use mapping, like such a collection of expertise had to come together for us to have this understanding, which is pretty darn interesting. Like, that's good stuff. Yeah, I agree. It, it's amazing what, I mean, the, the exponential rate at which knowledge is growing these days. And, and a lot of it is because of this interdisciplinary work that's becoming more and more, um, uh, I don't know if I'd say the word popular, but it's, 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 you know, it's more and more of the trend than it ever used to be. And it's, it's critical to, to solving these grand challenges of the, of the world. And yeah, I agree. It's, it's fascinating to see how information comes from so many different sources and how it's used together. It's, it's really, it's great. Yeah. And now we have an internet to connect all these different researchers and people can share information so easily and widely. It's, uh, it's pretty awesome. Yes. I agree. Yeah. Assuming that folks don't get the wrong information. The, 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 one of the downsides of, of the internet is also the fact that, uh, you know, you can get the wrong information very easily. 
or, or information that's uncertain and you don't, you know, people can interpret that information in the wrong way as well. So there's certainly these risks in addition to the benefits. Yeah. Have you seen examples of that where um, a public conversation sort of went awry because people were misunderstanding data or oversimplifying it or just not, not using it right? Um, I don't know that I can think of exactly an answer to that, but I'll, I can I can talk about a related problem that I, I think is is an issue. Sure. And that is the, uh, the 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 there have been a lot of work. There's been a lot of work going on with the IPCC International Climate Panel on Climate Change to understand um, you know what's happening with the, the the climate and what are the likely scenarios moving forward in terms of how much warming there'll be and and you know what the weather effects will be in different parts of the world, you know, climate effects. And um, the, the, the biggest number is the overall global warming number, you know, how much, how many degrees centigrade will we be warming in five, 10 years, 20 years, things like this. And there've been a lot of different estimates. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different models that are put together through, uh, and, and have been, and um, the estimates can vary from what we have these, uh, I don't remember what they're called, but they're, they're the good scenarios to the very bad scenarios, right? So there, there's a, a wide range of es estimates. You know, if we manage the the uh, our carbon output and, and and we grow enough trees, and we're going to have some, you know, lower expected uh, uh, increases in temperature over the next decades, and if we don't manage to, it's going to be higher than expected. And and you know, these are all models, so they all have they all have a lot of uncertainty in them as well. Um, so when reporting some of this, it's very easy to just take the average or the, you know, or the, the middle, uh, climate scenario, climate change scenario. And a lot of reporters were reporting on the, the, you know, the middle or most expected climate change scenario. It looks like, in the, you know, with the new data coming in that actually it's the climate change is more towards some of these higher ex expected, uh, changes. So that's really unfortunate, but a lot of governments and, and um, companies actually were using these expected uh, changes to, to plan um, how to, uh, you know, how to adapt to these climate changes, but they were planning with what may be the wrong number because it was actually one of the higher ones because the mean or the median is not necessarily the right one. It's just the one that we're used to reporting. So I would say that's, the kind of challenge that is common, and this is a big one here. So, you know, hopefully, these companies and, and governments are recognizing this and, and, and changing their adaptation plans very quickly. But yeah, well, and people could, you know, if they misunderstand that projection, they might say, "Oh, well, we've got time to deal with it," or "Oh, we don't need to take really drastic action because, you know, we'll be okay." And it could cause people to just sort of drag their feet when we really need urgent action. Absolutely. And also too, I guess, with a range of possibilities like that, what if the most extreme is correct? And we're just not um, understanding that as a possibility. Right, and it looks like 
one of the more extreme is correct. It doesn't necessarily mean the most, but it looks like the one of the more extreme is correct, at least at this point, for various reasons, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, uncertainty in estimates of input variables or, or certain things, certain feedback loops that are happening, you know, some melting makes, uh, they're talking about this on, on glaciers, you know, the melting actually makes the glaciers melt faster um, just because of some physical processes that they didn't expect. I don't understand them all. It's not my area, but uh, yeah, there's very like feedback are... loops and such that can get triggered and then make it worse. So, yeah. And, you know, I think part of the challenge with this type of modeling too, is that the future depends on our actions. So there's this modeling around just how the atmosphere and the climate, um, acts and that's a complex system but then you know there's different outcomes based on human activity so a, a higher emissions path versus a lower emissions path and and that's that adds a whole other layer of complexity to trying to figure out what the future might look like because we don't know you know to what extent we're going to get our emissions under control so it's hard to really say, oh yeah, that's going to happen because we haven't made the future happen yet. Exactly. And even as we're doing things, it's hard to even monitor very well what our emissions are. It's not an easy task just to know what your emissions are. Although it's impressive uh, how well, you know, it has been able to be quantified or at least estimated. Um, but certainly the future is not known. And, and yeah, often in conversations about important issues like this, when people offer predictions, I tend to kind of discount it. I mean, it's important to look forward, but I like to think in terms of possibilities rather than predictions, <laughs> because yeah. really nobody knows for sure until it happens. But actually these predictive tools are incredibly important for understanding the impact of various uh decisions or behaviors yeah i just can't agree with you more exactly we don't know what the future holds so different um predictive scenarios um are 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 useful um but it's important to recognize that even in these scenarios there's a lot of uncertainty yeah in the predictive ability of, of them yeah do you think that over time um what am I trying to say? What does it look like, this process of trying to teach people about how to use data better or to understand these nuances? Like, um, I don't know, these are some challenging conversations, I think, when you, know, you deal with a politician or a, a, a business leader or something. Like, it's important that they understand the nuances. Um, is that a hard conversation to get people to understand it? It's a very important topic for one, I would say. I, it's not a part of the work. Th this kind of work is not something I'm involved with. Yeah, I know it's other people it's who are the lobbyists and the communications folks. I get it. Exactly, yeah. But I think, um, you know, there's always a, a, a bit of a, um, a tension between uh, producing information or, or, or uh, explaining information in a way that's precise and and uh, incorporates all the uncertainty involved and one that's actionable, right? And and so we want to say, you know, you should do this 
in order to have this outcome. That's the best um, thing for for a, a policymaker, for instance. But you know, a lot of times we say, you know, we might say, well, if you reduce your you know emissions by this amount, then um, you know we expect that air pollution levels will go down this amount. But it could be this amount. You know, the the range is between X and Y, and that's 95% confidence in the world, which means that there's a 5% chance could be outside that. We, you know, but if you say all these things, no one's going to listen to you. It's already beyond most people. Or but they'll just be challenge. frozen when you give them the full complexity of it. They'll just be boggled. Exactly. Won't know what exactly. to do. So, so it's what, and so, so some of this starts from really understanding what we do and don't know, and then making the best decisions we can about what's the best Method, you know, policies or interventions that could be, that would be based on that. And then very clearly w explaining that and working directly with people that they're, you know, the recipients of the information, the policymakers or the, the business leaders, so that it's not just some statement out there that they hear, they may hear about, but you actually work with them and say, you know, how can we, you know, what are your opportunities to, to make it to change processes and operations and, and in order to fulfill certain goals and, and you know, working with, with them to understand the data and, and what their interventions, how that may um, affect, you know, the, the future, whether it's carbon emissions or, or water impacts or whatever it is they're looking at. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm thinking about how with, um, I mean, with this population explosion we've had in the complexity of our world economy and new technology, it's like the world is getting more complex. At least it feels this way to me. Um, and then on top of that, we've got all this added data that we can understand about it, which is complicated to swim through. It just, you know, my humble perception as one imperfect human in the world is that there's just this growing complexity around me that is hard to sift through. And yet we have the same human brain that we've always had. So we've got all this added knowledge, but yet how to cram it in here is kind of tricky. Um, do you think the state of the art is growing or improving in sort of managing that complexity to make it actionable or communicable like so that somebody can actually get it you know like using different graphing or satellite imagery or different ways of communicating numbers or is that sort of capability improving i would say i mean i'm very impressed with our communications team because they really have uh great ways of, of thinking through complex ideas and uh, and Putting it into a simple graph to, to explain, you know, to folks. Um, but sometimes it's challenging, and sometimes we come up with with graphs that aren't so simple, you know. And, and it's 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 always a, a challenge. I think I don't know if I can comment on you know how the world is moving in this way, but I would say that uh, it's always important. I mean, I mean, like you said, there's so much information out there, and no, we can't expect people to cram all this information into their heads. So it's really about having the science community work directly with the user, the intended users of the information that the science is producing, and 
figuring out, you know, in every unique case, how to get that information best to those uh, recipients of the information. And I think, uh, and that's at least as important as the science. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not always about like getting everybody to learn everything. It's about getting the right person to learn the right thing that yes. they need. Yeah. Yes. Which requires a sort of mapping of uh, society and politics in who's who, yes. who needs what. Absolutely. And that's what WRI is, is excellent at. We have, um, you know, folks who are, are very well connected to ministries of, of governments all around the world and, and to the United Nations and to the you know, World Bank and we're working with top folks and, and companies everywhere. And, and that is the real strength of WRI that I feel really privileged to work with WRI because we're actually having an influence through these networks and connections. And ideally we're gonna keep this all based on you know, the fundamental science, which is where my role is to make sure that information that does get out there, we're basing it on uh, science with integrity that's been reviewed and, and, and you know, um, can be backed up by, by, uh, you know, by facts and, 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 and experimentation. Mm -hmm. Has anything come along lately that surprised you in its ingenuity? Like, wow, some researcher came up with this? Like, I didn't know you could collect data on that. Like, does anything kind of come along that's interesting like that? in terms of um, people's capabilities to understand things? Yeah, I would say uh, one thing that surprises me is just how well we're able to assess carbon emissions by sector, you know, assessing how much, how much emissions are coming from agriculture, how much from electricity generation or, or heavy industry, and from, you know, cutting forests down or the land use change in general. Now there are big air bars in all these, you know, we don't know how much is in each one, but they're estimates. And um, it's just amazing how we can, you know, look at such a large scale on countries and globally to understand how much, uh, how much carbon dioxide or how much carbon is being emitted from agriculture, you know, or carbon and methane and then some of these other greenhouse gases as well and how much heavy, heavy industry is emitting. Like we actually can get some decent estimates and uh, assign you know, this blame or this, this responsibility to these different industries. And then uh, that allows us to, to target you know, a certain amount of reductions in a certain amount of time and, we, and, and then monitor how, um, how well you know, the, we've been able to act in each of these sectors to reach these targets. And so, so much of this is dependent on the monitoring. And it's just amazing that we can even get relatively decent estimates on a country level of how much, you know, how much our cars or, or certain kinds of industries are, are polluting the atmosphere or are putting up, uh, you know, carbon emissions. I think it's fascinating. You can even assess a type of activity happening around the world, like really worldwide data coming together to understand it. Yes, and sometimes that comes from, you know, assessing what's happening in the atmosphere, but a lot of times it comes from, um, you know, synthesizing information from all the different countries. But we have a lot of that data and then some is better than others, but 
um, yeah, it's just an amazing amount of infrastructure that's needed in order to get that kind of information and and uh, the kind of floor that we can we can even do things at this scale. Yeah, yeah. But it's critical too. We need to because we need to monitor it so we can monitor how we're going to improve, which obviously uh, is critical to improve these, uh, you know, to reduce our, our carbon footprint. And I just hope that uh, the science and the governments and, and the companies can all get together, you know, along with the, the nonprofit world to, to actually make the difference that we need. Mm-hmm. But it all starts with, with measuring it. Yeah, yeah. So WRI is one amazing group doing this kind of work. And I know there are additional organizations who are using some of these powerful research tools to understand the world and communicate. Like, if you look at sort of humanity's ability to understand its impacts and make good decisions, like with these tools, what do we need to do to increase this all? I mean, you know, and and keep enhancing and growing this sector to just make the most of it. Because I'm I'm assuming we don't have all the world's problems solved yet. (laughs) And so, like, how do we keep it going? How do we grow this and and make more happen? Right. Well, that's a very good question. I think uh, the key is in... I think one of the biggest ways that we can uh, do this is by having um, governments put their their money, their you know their their public funds into into science, and that means education, that means uh, research and development. This is, uh, but there also needs to be private public partnerships. So, um, you know, government working with companies that also put uh, funding into into R and D. Um, so I think those are the keys. Yeah. I think we just need to fund research and development because sometimes, you know, the payoff is, is a lot longer term for some research and development. So it's not necessarily in a company's best interest all the time to focus on that because they're, they're maybe focused on returns on a scale of one to 10 or 20 years. And some of these returns might be more, you know, might uh, be on a longer term than that. Certainly, Preventing climate change is something that, you know, could be on a scale of 50 to 100 years. And a lot of folks in business may not be motivated by stockholders to, you know, to, to focus on something like you know, such that's so long term. But it's for all of humanity. We need to focus on this. Um, and if you look at the amount of research and development and science funding there is, uh, it's, it's really quite small compared to a lot of the other uh, sectors. From, from governments around the world. So I think that's the easiest way to, to move this forward. Yeah, yeah. I sometimes do notice the mismatch between, um, you know, all our various technical tools in the world. Like if you compare for-profit areas in technology that are making so many billions of dollars right now, and yet the nonprofit sector studying how to save the world just does not get the same funding. And um, I'd love to see that balanced to where a society in general prioritized knowledge about these important issues and invested in it. Yeah, I agree. Although I will say that there is at least some movement now that uh, where these big companies, a lot of the big tech firms are putting some money into these and yeah. both through 
funding. I mean, we get a lot of money from, um, you know, from, for instance, we get, we, we uh, receive money from the Gates Foundation and from the Bezos Earth Fund. And so, you know, they're putting money into these foundations that are going to nonprofits, but also the companies themselves are working with, um, with, with organizations like ours and with governments to try and solve some of these problems. Mm -hmm. But I completely agree that it's still not at the scale at all that we need. And, and we need to make sure that the right, that, you know, there's so much wealth being generated and a lot of that wealth needs to be prioritized on, uh, and put back into, into science and research and making sure that that research is actually being used in ways to, to make a difference. Yeah. You know, something I hope for, and, and maybe today's conversation is a small contribution to it, but I feel like if the public really understood the capabilities of this kind of research, that they might have higher expectations of their government and businesses that they support with their um, purchases. So like, you know, in my um, life, I've done some public policy work and it shocked me sometimes when I would be with a policymaker that's making important decisions just based on gut instinct or intuition. And I'd be like, no, wait, really, we could collect some data on that. Are you sure you don't want some data before you make that really important decision? And so I think if citizens had this understanding, they might say, hey, government official, did you study that before you decided? Did you hire WRI or somebody to help you with that? Do you have staff in your agencies that can really analyze this stuff well? You know, that kind of expectation by citizens might cause governments to sort of up their game and um, do things in a more sophisticated way. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think it's, it's very important that for democracy in general. That's why a lot of this, I think, starts with governance, you know, because in order to move the needle, we need to have better science and have that fed into policymakers and things. But we can't get that unless we have, uh, you know, a governance system that allows people's voices to be heard and, the, and, and that holds governments accountable for, you know, the, what they do and, and, um, and to fund the science and the research. So it's, it's all about governance first, I think. Yeah, which includes yeah, which includes uh, an informed democracy and an informed uh, electorate, as well as as holding the government itself accountable. Yeah, and maybe journalists being on board with this too, you know, because they ask the tough questions of public officials. And so, when a public official comes out with a recommendation or a proposal, you know, the journalist should be right there saying, "Hey, show us your research." You read yes, and first, right? <laughs> Show us your research. Yeah. And where's the money for coming from the journalists? You know, this is mm -hmm. certainly not my area, but making sure that the journalists have, don't have, you know, funding or, or, or political uh, motivations that are outside of really finding the truth. And, and, and uh, that's, you know, part of governance as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm curious what the future might look like for WRI or just the field of research in general, like if we start to have even better tools like stronger computing or artificial intelligence or 
even better satellite imagery or other tools I haven't even imagined or don't know about yet. But, you know, with better tools, are there things on your wish list that you guys would love to be able to study if, if the capability grows? Um, I, I would imagine that every department in our organization would have a different set of wishes on this list. Yeah. But uh, absolutely. But I, I'd say some of the ones that come to my mind are, um, you know, forests are huge in terms of what's being cut down, what's being, what's growing at what rates, how much carbon are they sequestering, how much carbon is being released. These are challenging questions, especially to monitor globally. So if we can get better at using satellite imagery or other means to, to more precisely monitor forest restoration and, and forest uh, cutting and degradation, um, I think that would be a really big, big boost for us. And, and that, you know, we're actually working on that right now. We've got um, a lot of resources put towards uh, being able to monitor the earth um, regularly and then get more information out of, out of that from satellite imagery. Um, another area is we're doing a lot of work on, on understanding uh, generation by power plants, how much electricity is being generated and what's, what the, uh, um, the, the carbon impacts may be of that. Um, so we're, but you know, there's so many power plants around the world and, and a lot of times they don't, divulge all their, their data to, you know, it's not open. So trying to find other ways to learn about how much electricity they're generating and how much, what their emissions are. And, and uh, I think, so that, that would be an area that we're really interested in, in moving forward. Um, and I would say the biggest recent push, uh, especially in the era of, you know, post George Floyd is we're really focusing on, on equity issues in, in every department. And so how are, how are, all the policies that we're talking about in every sector affecting equity issues and, and, and who's, you know, reaping the benefits and, the, and who's taking the risks and how can we minimize the risks, especially to the, the, the more vulnerable. So, um, you know, I, I can't, I'm not saying there's one data source that's going to be focusing on this, but just thinking through, you know, what data we need in, in all these, these areas, I, it's kind of where we're, we're headed. Yeah, yeah. Well, you do an amazing work. I'm just thrilled by all of what I'm hearing. And I, I do though feel some empathy for you because it much must be a brain crunch. <laughs> like this is not easy work that you do, so. Well, I appreciate it. I feel like, uh, it's, yeah, it's, um, I'm very happy I made the move to WRI. I only moved here about two and a half years ago and I'm doing less of my own research, but working on research in many areas, you know, in, in different ways. And it's been such a, a pleasure to learn about and to feel like I'm having even a small impact on some of this. And um, I think it's, it's incredibly important and, and it's fascinating to be a part of. Sometimes it can be tiring on the mind, but I just play some ping pong to take a break and then I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've been super generous with your time. Um, you know, and I can let you go whenever, but is there anything that we should have covered that we missed? I think uh, we, we chatted a little bit beforehand about some topics we, we talk about, and I think we, we basically covered them and, and um, happy to, to provide more insight in the future if, if that's useful. But uh, I just 
would say thank you, Shelby, and I think you're doing great work to try and get all this information out to to folks um, and grow your your audience to have people really think through some of the more you know fine points about what's you know about the environmental issues and about the the grand challenges that the world is facing, and we all need to be thinking about it because can't leave it to just a few people to focus on everyone needs to do their part and i would say to your audience members because a lot of a lot of times i feel like you know a little helpless in whether it's in government or in, in the environment like what can i do i'm just one person mm -hmm. well one big thing we can do is eat less beef mm -hmm. and what i also say is that means that the beef you do eat you've got to really enjoy <laughs> <laughs> exactly make account for the whole month <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. yes but yeah. but really eating less beef is the easiest thing we can do to to make a difference in the environment on a personal level right yeah there you go that's what data teaches us you know <laughs> well greg thank you so much for joining us i'm so happy that we had this conversation this was a lot of fun really interesting i really enjoyed it shelby thank you for having me and dear listener, thanks to you for being with us. Um, I'm glad that you've, uh, you know, stayed with us and enjoyed this information, hopefully. Um, and until next time, let's just try to be, try to be the best people we can be. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening, but you're not done yet. We can't change the world if we keep the joy of saving the human race to ourselves. Help me spread the word and help this movement grow. Please subscribe to the show, both the podcast and the YouTube channel. Leave ratings or reviews, which encourages others to listen. Share this show with others on your social media. Even better, just tell a friend about it and have a good conversation about the state of the world. These things really make a difference. I hope you can help the show grow and reach a larger audience. I'm grateful for your help. Thank you. And please stay in touch with me. I love to get feedback, suggestions, and questions. Go to the website at joyofsavingthehumanrace.com. At the website, you'll learn more about the show, and you can sign up to get occasional email updates. Thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for being here. All right, we're done for today. Be well. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>